Today's reading comes from Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Carrie. How many of you, that sounds like your normal shopping list, what she just read? Yeah, okay, that's awesome. Um, so today is, boy, interesting day. This is the uh, most text we're going to cover in one Sunday. Seven chapters, chapters 30, uh, 25 through 31, and I'm going to read every word. Uh, no, I'm not, okay. Um, actually, uh, this has been interesting to me. Uh, the details that are given in these seven chapters are absolutely breathtaking and specific. And, and it's, it's interesting, as I speak to so many people as a pastor, uh, the number of people who absolutely pine for details about certain things in the Bible that, just, that simply are not there. Why didn't God tell us about this? Why doesn't God go deeper here? Why doesn't God give us the details of this? And yet... And yet, when God describes the plans for the tabernacle and its accoutrement, we yawn and skim the text. Uh, we can just kind of bypass that. The focus that God gives us here in Exodus for seven chapters should tell us something implicitly, if not explicitly. And maybe what it tells us is that what we think is important isn't all that. And that what God thinks is important is what we should maybe turn our attention to. We should take careful notice. It might even be somewhat of the basis for what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, look, what you should be doing as my followers is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be given to you. So seek me first. And so we're looking at something today that, that God seems to think is really important, and that is the preparation of the making of the tabernacle. And, and I want to just give you a, a quick outline so that you see uh, sort of a, a plan on where we're going to go. Very briefly, like I said, it's a flyover. But here's what it looks like. What Carrie just read is about the funding and the vision for the tabernacle. That's the call to community. They are calling the community. Uh, together in order to be able to put this together to build this. Uh, and then the rest of chapter 25, verses 10 through 40, is preparing to furnish the space, the tabernacle itself. And there's specific detail given to three pieces of furniture, very important pieces of furniture. That would be the ark, the table of the bread of presence, and the golden lampstand. We hear all about that. Chapter 26 is all about the tabernacle itself, the space. This, this is the house of God. And then chapter 27 is the accoutrement for the tabernacle. It talks about the altar 
and then the court of the tabernacle, which is actually sort of outside like the lobby, and then the oil that is needed uh, for the tabernacle. Uh, Chapters 28 and 29 are all about the priests and their accoutrement in the tabernacle. And it starts with what the priests are supposed to be wearing and how we're supposed to how we're supposed to make those garments for the priests and what the details of the garments symbolize and remind us of. And then in chapter 29, uh, the priests are recognized and consecrated. They're ordained. And so there's a description of the ceremony and understanding of the uh, blood of atonement and the various sacrificial blood and then uh, the various offerings as well. Chapter 30 is more accoutrement, uh, more furnishings, more equipment, and more funding. So we hear about incense and uh, this census tax and some more oil, but different kind of oil this time. Not oil for the lamp, but oil for anointing. And then chapter 31, the first 11 verses, is uh, detailing the project managers, the implementing architects and the contractors, and, and God's call to get to work now that we have the plans. And then the last six verses, the Sabbath again. We've been on this Sabbath kick, and the reason is because God's been on this Sabbath kick in Exodus. It's amazing how often God specifically brings up the Sabbath in Exodus. And here he says, even as you're building my house, you are to take your rest. You are to allow the workers to rest. You're to allow everybody to have a day to remember me. And of course, in reading and studying these seven chapters, I was quite often reminded of us moving into this property three and a half years ago. There were so many similarities, and I'll weave a little bit of that in. So what Carrie just read to us, that first nine verses, it's interesting that even though his people, God's people, are in the wilderness, you ever been in the wilderness and, and wondered why God is pressing you for something? Why now, God? Why are you pressing me now? I'm in the wilderness. I'm having a hard time. So this is very difficult. I'm in that liminal space between things. Why do you want something from me now? Even in the wilderness, God calls for, expects, and deserves from his people devotion, sacrifice, generosity, service, order, and purpose. We need to understand that. That even in the tough times, God is still going to be with us and he's going to press us because it's really going to be for our own good. And God explains that we can never escape the reality that life in faith Life and faith involves investment, commitment, and sacrifice at some level, at some level. It's not just receiving. Yes, we receive the mercy of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, cross, death, and resurrection, new life. We receive that. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the journey. Now we're called to be His people, and there's going to be some level of commitment and investment that's... uh, Involved in that. But notice that it's done in community. It's done together. We're called not only to him, but we're called to each other as well. Ten years ago, when East Valley Bible Church merged with Praxis Church to become Redemption Church, what Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, told everybody is the reason we're doing this is because we're going to be better together. And we are better together This model of Redemption Church, one church with nine congregations, has been phenomenal. It's been wonderful. I can't tell you the benefits of working for a church that has uh, this economy of scale. It's It's been a wonderful and beautiful thing. 
that's what it means to be a body, to be able to count on others as well as yourself. And this opening paragraph sets the stage for all the rest of these chapters. And notice, this is very important, that the contributions that God is calling, while they are investment, they are a sacrifice, they are a commitment, it's voluntary. These contributions and this participation is still voluntary. God isn't interested in, in making this compulsory. He wants your heart. And, and if he has your heart, he knows he's going to get your obedience, your commitment, your investment, and your sacrifice. But he first wants your heart so that it's you that is coming in this way. Look at verse 2. It says, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in the, sec- in the New Testament writes this, each person is to give as he or she has decided in their heart and not reluctantly or out of compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is, is, is concerned about the attitude in your giving as he is about the gift itself. And we need to remember that. But we also need to remember that if you're somebody who has means, who has resources, who has time or talent or treasure, and you have decided in your heart that you are going to hoard that time, treasure, and talent, and that you're not going to give it. You've decided in your heart, you should also not be like so many who decide in their heart not to give, but then fully desire and expect all the benefits of everyone else's sacrifice, investment, and giving. Can I get an amen on that, please? You understand what I'm saying there, okay? Let's understand that God wants us to put skin in the game, but he wants our heart first, and we're all to put skin in the game. And by the way, these people are now wilderness nomads, right? Where are they getting all of this stuff? Where do they get these goods to contribute? Do you remember when they left Egypt that God gave them the plunder? Well, here you go. They do have resources, in fact, to be able to give to the building of the tabernacle. And this holy place of worship, this home for God, this tabernacle is no common tent. We need to understand that this tent, this this building is being designed for royalty. The overwhelming use of gold and other precious metals, the fine fabrics, and then just the colors, the purple, the scarlet, the blue, and the white, all points to the fact that this is going to be royalty that occupies this this, uh, building. Now, as I read this part for Redemption Arcadia, this is akin, I remember, to the two-year run-up that we had to occupying this amazing property that God has presented for us. It was about two years from acquisition of the property uh, to going through making all of the plans, the capital campaign, the construction, and actually being able uh, to move into this place. And, And then the call as well for all of us to participate in that, as well as the miraculous acquisition. If you've never heard the story of how we ended up with this property... It's worth your while to hear that story, and I'd be glad to be the one to tell you because it's, it's one of the most wonderful God stories I've ever been involved in, how we ended up um, here. But also the capital campaign to raise funds, the awareness, uh, the picking out of materials uh, that our architect helped us with, and the rebuilding of the property 
uh, itself, what to keep, what not to keep. This ceiling, you know, was part of the original building that was built here in 1959. It's kind of, and if it looks like uh, what might be sort of an upside down Noah's Ark, that's exactly what it's designed to look like, in case you were wondering about that. And then the rest of chapter 25 gives instructions on preparing the three key furnishings for the tabernacle. It calls, first of all, for something called the Ark of the Testimony. Because of Harrison Ford, most of us know it as the Ark of the Covenant, but it's actually, in Scripture, more often called the Ark of the Testimony. Um, It also calls for this table for the bread of presence and also the drink offerings that will be offered. And then it calls for this golden lampstand. So the ark is actually supposed to contain the tablets that Moses will get from God with the Ten Commandments on it. It's going to be big enough to be able to put those tablets in there. And the ark is to be built with gold rings and these poles that you can put into the rings so that you could carry the ark. The ark had to be movable, carryable, or portable because they're going to be moving around, Okay. The ark was also decorated with cherubim. That's, that's cherubim is, is Hebrew, uh, the plural. Uh, and, and so there's several of these cherubim. And cherubim are known as traditional guardians of holy places. Traditional guardians of holy places. If you've read Genesis chapter 3, and you know that after Adam and Eve sin, and, and God uh, confronts them and then makes the garments uh, for them, He then exits Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eve and he closes the entrance of the Garden of Eden and um, he he puts cherubim at the entrance to guard the entrance so so that Adam and Eve cannot get back into the Garden of Eden because after having been in there without sin, they would like to be back in there, I can tell you. And so it's guarded now because they're sinners, they're they're fallen, they're, uh, they're corrupt and so he guards it. But, how, but the, the beauty of that, of course, is that through the finished work of Christ, you and I are going to get to re-enter this garden. Amen. And it's going to be in the form of the new Jerusalem when it comes again. Essentially, that's the garden restored, and that's where we're going to be spending eternity with God. That's going to be the new temple. That's going to be the new tabernacle. If you want to read more about that, Read the book of Revelation. I'm like, Revelation's hard. Well, read, read like chapters uh, 21 and 22, and you'll get a really good picture of that. The ark also has a mercy seat on it, which is commonly understood as the throne of God, but also the Hebrew word that's translated mercy seat is related to the Hebrew word that means to make atonement. So again, in Exodus, all of the symbolism, everything that they do continues to be a foreshadowing of how God ultimately will make atonement for us through His Son. It's a pretty good deal. Further, the tabernacle is designed to have what's called a holy of holies. It's gonna, so the tabernacle itself is considered the holy space, but inside the tabernacle there's this holy of holies, and it's sectioned off by curtains or veils, And then there's simply the holy space of the tabernacle outside of the holy of holies where the people uh, will worship and the priests will serve. And then outside of the tabernacle itself is the court. I have a little... So this is a drawing, a rendering of the tabernacle itself. This is the court of the... uh, These curtains enclose the court of the tabernacle, which you see here, which is outside... Then you enter the tabernacle where the priests 
uh, will serve and the people will worship. And then there's the most holy, the holy of holies right there. And the ark is the only piece of furniture that goes into uh, the holy of holies. The other thing about the holy of holies is that only the high priest is allowed to go into the holy of holies. The other priests can go into the, the rest of the tabernacle. The people can go into the rest of the tabernacle. But only the high priest is allowed to go into the holy of holies at certain times to offer certain sacrifices. And check this out. Um, history tells us that they would, uh, uh, over the years, they would tie a rope to the leg of the priest... Uh, when he went into the Holy of Holies, in case he died while he was in there, nobody else was supposed to go into the Holy of Holies other than the high priest. So in order to get him out, they could just drag him out. That's how revered the Holy of Holies is, right? Now think about what happens in the New Testament there, right? In the temple, what happened? The veil is torn from top to bottom. And now through Christ you and I have access to the Holy of Holies. Do you see how beautiful Exodus is in pointing us to who Jesus is, the reality of the one true God? It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So the ark is the only thing that goes into the Holy of Holies. All other furniture is going to go inside the rest of the tabernacle or in the court of the tabernacle. There's the table that holds the bread of presence. There are to be 12 loaves. So the bread is symbolic of God's presence. I am the bread of life. And the 12 represents the 12 tribes of Israel. So you can, again, you see the symbolism there. And then the golden lampstand is what provides the light. And, and it is thought that is, if you look at the pictures of the renderings of the, of the golden lampstand, it looks like a tree. And so it's thought to symbolize the tree of life. While it gives light. So I am the light of the world is, is, is the idea there. So you start to hear Jesus' own teachings is referencing to so many of these things. At Redemption Arcadia, we, we couldn't simply build the space and not furnish it. And great conversation was given to how we were going to furnish it. And, and then here you go. A lot of conversation was given to how we were going to take communion in here. Where we were going to place our bread and, and even where the tables were going to go for that. So there's some similarity there. Then chapter 26 is all about the space itself, the tabernacle. The detail of how to put together the tabernacle is absolutely incredible. And the text itself is huge. And yet, I'm sorry, the tent itself is huge. And yet it's designed to be portable. It, it was designed to, you could break it down and carry it. Because you know they're going to be moving a lot. And again, there's a lot of gold and purple and scarlet emphasizing the importance of the occupant of the tent. And there are a great many curtains and veils involved, and with good reason. Uh, let me read. Let me read verses 31, uh, 26 through 31 of chapter 26. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for frames on the side of the tabernacle at the, at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the, the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. 
And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. So you can see the detail and you can see the importance that God takes on the the actual materials and how to put it together. And we can see there the separation of the holy of holies uh, from the holy space. And the only, only the ark is in the holiest place. And only the high priest is allowed in there. Uh, Two things this points to in the New Testament, and I've already mentioned one of them. When Jesus died, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies was miraculously cut from top to bottom. In Christ, you and I are invited now into the Holy of Holies. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a professional religious person. You have direct access to God. We don't have to have somebody make a sacrifice for us. You giving your life to Jesus, you calling on the name of Jesus, you saying, I surrender to you, I am now a Christian, a Christ follower, is the only sacrifice he calls from us. It's just giving our lives to him. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. And the reason is because Jesus has actually done it all. We don't have to atone for our sin because Jesus did it. That's why we give our life to him. We don't have to go to a cross. We don't, have to, we don't have to sacrifice any more animals. We don't have to do any of that because Jesus has done it all. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And second of all, the, the detail of this tabernacle is similar to the detail that we get in, revolution of, in Revelation of the New Jerusalem. Again, if you read through the detail of what the New Jerusalem, the city of the New Jerusalem is going to look like, you see so many similarities And if you'll recall, the new Jerusalem is actually the new temple, the new tabernacle, where you and I will dwell for eternity with God. The entire city is going to be the temple, the tabernacle. This is magnificent. It is. And so when we skim these these texts, we don't get the depth of this. And that's why we're slowing down and taking a look at it. In fact, the tabernacle, if you think about this tabernacle that they're building here, It is for them and always has been, even for us, representative not of where God dwells. This is really important. It's not representative of where God dwells, but of where God and his people dwell together. That's so important. It's being built for God, but it's also being built for his people. And so the the tabernacle is actually representative of the Garden of Eden in chapters 1 and 2 in the first part of 3. The tabernacle is representative of Israel and the promised land. The tabernacle is a picture of the new temple that is actually built in Jerusalem. The tabernacle is a picture of the New Testament church. Not this building, but of the church, the body of Christ that we share with Christians everywhere. And the tabernacle is a picture of the new Jerusalem. Chapter 27 is then more accoutrement for the completion of the space. There's the bronze altar, which is to be placed at the entrance of the tabernacle in the courtyard. And the construction of this courtyard is also detailed in this chapter. The courtyard is very similar to maybe a, a, a lobby or a narthex. That's, it's supposed to function that way. The purpose is described by Old Testament scholars of the court of the tabernacle is to uh, provide the people with a buffer zone or a transition space to be able to come from the world into God's home. So when Jack DeBartolo, who is our architect, designed our space, 
If you've ever wondered about those gabion walls that are on the east side of the property between um, the buildings and, and the parking lot, there was specific thinking by Jack, our architect, behind those gabion walls. He said, we really need to have a place where people sort of feel like they're transitioning in a physical way from the parking lot, from the world, into entering into this space here where we're going to be worshiping God. And so, haven't you ever thought about why when you go through those gabion walls, you have to zigzag? Why did he do that? Why didn't he just make a straight shot right through there? Because he wants us to take 15 or 20 seconds to think about where we're headed and what we're going to do. Think about encountering God as we walk into this space. Can you believe the detail that our architect put behind this for the way we're supposed to think about uh, these things? It reminds us that we're entering a space where God is worshipped. And lastly, in chapter 27, it is expected that the people are going to provide oil for the lighting of the lamps in all of the tabernacle spaces. And so, here you go. we got to keep the lights on and the air conditioning running. Amen? Chapters 28 and 29 are all about the priests who will moderate the worship services and administer the sacrifices in the tabernacle. And as we read chapter 28 again, we can be overwhelmed with the detail of the priestly garments and the accoutrement all the way down. You get description of their undergarments in this chapter, as a matter of fact. Some of you are like, really? Okay, now I'm going to read that chapter. Okay. <laughs> Every detail of the priestly clothing and accessories is designed to symbolize the high status of God and remind the people of God's grace, power, and provision. So there's lots of things on the internet to help you with this, and, and I picked this one to take a look. So you can see that's... Apparently, that's what I'm supposed to look like as I minister up here, I guess. So, uh, but you see all of that stuff, and all of it is very particular and specific and supposed to be um, supposed to symbolize things. For instance, um, the garments have the 12 tribes of Israel written on them so that we're reminded of, of that. And so as we think about what about, okay, maybe it's kind of like my Sunday shirts or maybe Tyler's tattoos. That's the best I could come up with. I'm sorry. Here's what we need to remember about these priestly garments, though. And Jesus was very careful to point this out in the New Testament, if you'll recall. Garments are not what makes somebody holy. Jesus is what makes us holy. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you guys are what? Whitewashed tombs. You know how to dress up the outside. The problem is, is that you're dead where it counts. That's on the inside. Our hearts need to be transformed by Christ. And then chapter 29 provides details about the consecration or what you might call the ordination of the priests. The meaning of the Hebrew word ordination that we translate as ordination means to fill the hands. To ordain a priest, the, 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 the picture, the metaphor is that God is pouring himself out into the pastor, the priest, the minister, because it is by the power of God, by the filling of his Holy Spirit, that the priests are going to be doing their work. That's what ordination means. When I got ordained, that's, that's the picture that was happening there. And in this, several, in, in this ceremony, there are several offerings that are made to God, all kinds of different uh, offerings. There's a sin offering, there's a food offering, there's a wave offering. That's interesting to study, why there's a wave offering. Um, in the 1980s and 90s, we had sort of a new version at, at, at sporting events of a wave offering. It wasn't... Anyway. Um, 
various burnt offerings and an offering for atonement. And various details, uh, further uh, details on these offerings can be found in the book of Leviticus if you're so inclined to study that. And there is for the first time in these chapters an emphasis on blood. Blood of the sacrificed animals for the atonement of sin and the blood is to be spread on the priests and on the altar. So the priests mediate this atoning blood for the people. Only the priests are allowed to mediate the atoning blood for the people. But now, again, in Christ, the last blood ever shed for sin has been shed. Again, it is finished. Three greatest words ever in history. Again, everything in these chapters points to the gospel of Jesus. It's amazing. His once-for-all sufficient final sacrifice for sin And it points to his second coming in order to usher in the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new tabernacle, the eternal glorious dwelling place that you and I will have with God. God's intention was always that he would dwell with his people. And he is going to do this. And all of us, all of us who are now believers are God's priests. It's not just the professional religious people like myself. And if you're not sure about that, see 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and look at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The veil is torn, the last blood is shed, we are loved and we are forgiven, and then we are sent as well. So yeah, at Redemption Arcadia, we have our priests. There's, there's the pastoral staff, there are the elders, and then we have our priests. All y'all, as they say in Texas. All y'all. We're all priests. And then chapter 30 is more accoutrement, more furnishings and more equipment and, and more funding for the tabernacle. First, there's the altar for the incense that will be burned in the tabernacle. Now, why incense? Well, the smoke of the burning incense is thought to symbolize the prayers of God's people rising up to God. But also the incense, if you, there's details about how to make these incense out of the absolute finest spices that the people have. And so the fact that they have to use their finest spices is an indication of that level of sacrifice again that we we are called to uh, in offering to God. And then there's the bronze basin. The bronze basin is located in the courtyard outside of the tabernacle. And this was for the priests to wash their hands and their feet before entering the tabernacle. And it's interesting that God says this here. He says, if the priests don't clean themselves up before they enter the space to minister, they might die. Now, why? Why? Why would God say that about the priests cleaning up? Because... Cleaning up before you come to God in that context was, in, in a sense, it was letting God know that you're not approaching Him in a casual way. We've talked the last several weeks about how casual we are with God and how serious God is about our relationship with Him. And so um, He makes them do this uh, as a sign that they are being serious about their ministry and their relationship with God. And then there's the oil for anointing. So this is different than the oil for the lamps. This is oil for anointing. And oil, uh, historically, has been symbolic of the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit, but also of the Holy Spirit's healing nature. So two levels there, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God's healing nature. And it makes sense that in the tabernacle there would be oil for this purpose, but it's interesting that this oil 
was only to be used in, in this section here to anoint the tabernacle, its furnishings, and the priests, but not the people. That's kind of interesting. Again, Look at the New Testament and what happens in the New Testament. The book of James, which is thought to be the earliest written down book of the New Testament, believe it or not. I know it's all the way at the end of the New Testament. Why isn't it in the front? But chronologically, it's probably the first book of the New Testament to actually be written down. And here's what James writes in chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You may not be aware of this, some of you are, but our elders and deacons have gone into people's homes in order to specifically have prayer and anointing of oil services for people in their homes at Redemption Arcadia. And we are available to do that if you are so inclined or feel the need for, for such a service. That's part of what we do here because we're called to do it. And the Holy Spirit sends us to be able to do that. And then there's this census tax. So in addition to everything else that the people are giving, based on um, their means, there is also this census tax that's very specifically um, uh, the details are given to us. And this census tax is needed from everyone. This is the one thing everybody has to give. Every last person has to give this in order to help sustain the operation of the tabernacle. It's not the only thing that will sustain the operation of the tabernacle, but it will help it. And it was once a year, and it was only half a shekel per person. A half a shekel is about half a day's wages. So whatever you make in about four or five hours a day, one time a year, you have to give that to the tabernacle. But here's the interesting thing about the tax. The rich people paid half a shekel, and the poor people paid half a shekel. Why? Why was it the same for both? That doesn't seem fair. Here's why. Both rich and poor are in equal need of atonement for sin. It's a picture of how um, theologically, naturally, we stand before God in the same boat, no matter how much money we have or don't have. We stand in the same boat. And, and so there are other ways that God's work and the ministries of the priests in the tabernacle are funded, but this tax is symbolic of how economic status makes no difference in God's eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the challenge with this is that we live in a time today especially, I hear this all the time in various forms, when we want to measure a person's supposed spirituality by how much money they have or don't have. And we make judgments about God's favor in their life based on how much money they have or they don't have. And so you hear about how if somebody has wealth, People will say, God must favor them. God must be blessing them. Uh, God must know them because they have wealth. Or, we hear this, they have wealth, they are the worst sinners of all because the only reason they have wealth is because they're corrupt and they did something illegal to get that money and we need to get them and God needs to get them. So you can't win as a rich person. But you also can't win as a poor person because we hear about how poor people 
God is ignoring them. God is oppressing them. God, God has not shown them his favor. God has withdrawn from the poor people. But then we hear from other people who say, poor people, the oppressed, those are really gods. They're the real spiritual ones. Because they know what it's like to have a hard life. They know they're the ones who, who are really in God's kingdom. If you've got money, you can't be in God's kingdom the way a poor person. I hear this all the time. Here you go. All of that is theologically misguided. And if you want to put the Bible up against that kind of theology, you're wrong. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People in Arcadia need Jesus just as much as anybody else in this world. And people in the poorer sections of Phoenix need Jesus just as much as the people in Arcadia need Jesus. We're all in that same boat. God is reminding his people 3,500 years ago of this truth as well. And then the last chapter, chapter 31 Verses 1 through 11, the project managers, the implementing architects, the contractors. And there's an emphasis on how God has gifted and equipped his people to do this work that needs to be done. And God expects these gifted and equipped people to carry out every detail of his instructions. And for Redemption Arcadia, this was Jack DeBartolo and his team of architects here and Porter Construction Company and all of the subs that worked on this property. And then verses 12 through 17, the Sabbath, again, why, why? Let me read verses 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Above all, keep my Sabbaths. So that God's people know who he is, that he's the one who equips, empowers, and sanctifies, and that he is creator and sovereign over all. And I know, again, our tendency in our world today, I used to fall prey to this too, uh, is to think, I have way too much to do. I can't take a Sabbath. I have way too much to do. I don't have time to pray. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, once wrote, I have so much to do today that I'm going to have to pray an extra two hours before I do it. That's an indication of relying on God, and that's what God wants from us. That's what he wanted from his people then as well. Here's how I want to wrap this up, very simply. Look at the detail that God gives his people about these plans. We've been talking the last several weeks about how God is a God of order, design, and purpose. And he had a specific order, design, and purpose in the Garden of Eden, and he outlines that order, design, and purpose for us beautifully in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what happens in chapter 3 is that order, design, and purpose got disordered by sin. And you and I have been disordering God's order, design, and purpose ever since. And we call it wisdom. And we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians that our wisdom is foolishness to God. And God's foolishness, God's wisdom... Um, God's wisdom is foolishness to us. But in reality, God's wisdom is what we need. And so this God of order, design, and purpose sees the corruption and knew of the corruption. Here you go. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall, right after the first sin, he saw what was happening and he already had a plan that he was going to send this Messiah to restore and reorder everything. 
That's what Jesus comes to do. Jesus living the perfect life, dying on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sin, and then being raised to new life, to come again to usher in the new Jerusalem, which once again will have perfect order, design, and purpose, and we will be there if we are in Christ. Jesus is here to restore the disorder that you and I, as part of the human race, have wrought on this world, on this universe. Jesus is the great reorderer. He's the great restorer. He is the great redeemer. He is the great deliverer. And again, we see Jesus ultimately being pointed to in everything we've looked at in Exodus. I think that's why this study in Exodus has been so important and so beautiful because it truly is the gospel of the Old Testament. God has us covered. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for these beautiful details of the tabernacle and the preview that you give us of, of our eternal place where we will abide and dwell with you. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And, and God, we know that you do this because you love us, but also to be able to glorify yourself. And we are privileged to be a part of that. And so, God, give us the courage to, again, just welcome the Holy Spirit into our hearts, to, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to orient ourselves toward your Holy Spirit, to not resist, but to be filled and sent. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.